Um, so for the next three weeks, as you guys know, Stephen's going to be gone um, on the uh, Mexico missions trip, and then today he's preaching, so it gave me the opportunity to put together a little three-week series, um, and God has been really working on my heart with a lot of the chaos that's been going on in the world uh, right now. Uh, you look around, and we'll hit it a little bit in, in the intro, but it can feel like Satan's got the victory in just about everything that's going on right now. Um, the level of uh, immorality, oppression, um, just what's wrong is right, um, is at an all-time high right now. Who needs a sheet, by the way? Oh, man, you guys got black arrows. That's a better color. <laughs> We're going down a dark path. I am. Yep. All right. Every student got one? All right, well, let's jump into it by way of introduction. So I put together a three-week series called Turning the Tables. And I want to look at three instances where God turned the tables either very directly or indirectly on Satan and what he was trying to accomplish in the Bible. Um, So let's jump into it. By way of introduction, many of us would agree that Satan's hand in the affairs of this world has become more and more evident as time goes on. His subtle workings have turned to blatant attacks on morality, biology, absolute truth, authority, the family or the family structure, our universe, and our ability to share the gospel. It can seem at times like there is no hope or point to try, or that this world is too far gone. Rather than letting Satan bind us, is your blank, with this lie, we need to allow God to use Satan's tactics against himself. As long as we are here on this earth, there is still a harvest and there are still laborers. Can I have someone to open us up in a word of prayer? Emily, thank you. Amen. All right. So I want to touch on that last part of the introduction a little bit. So if anybody asks you, you know, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You know, we we believe that and we know that. But sometimes, especially in your guys' sections of school or sports, you can feel like the laborers are are just completely non-existent. And it can push you to a place of what's the point? Why even do this? And Elijah even got to that in 1 Kings chapter 19. And that's when God reminded him, look, I have thousands that haven't bent their knee to Baal. I remember Tom made a comment a couple weeks ago from the pulpit of the importance of church, and I, it really resonated with me. You know, because we can take church and the assembling of ourselves for granted. You know, even last night going out and witnessing, coming back, having a bonfire. You know, we can look at those as just extracurriculars, and they're really not. It's, it's a measure of the heartbeat and how important the church and this body is to you. And how important you are and how much you're giving and ministering to the body, too. It's a two-way, two-way street. Um, but he made a comment. He said, you know what church really helps us do? It helps us realize that we're not 
a bunch of weirdos that we're not losing our minds because when you separate yourself from this body and you walk out in the world, man, it can feel like you're losing your mind. You can start to second guess things that you've had down pat for your entire life. And Satan does such a good job deceiving us. It really puts into perspective how good the Antichrist is going to be in the tribulation period. Now it says even the very elect could have been deceived had the days not been shortened. Had that level of deception, we're seeing it around us right now. And that's why it's so important that we're together. That we're so tight-knit in this church, in this body. To remind ourselves that these things are true. That we're not alone fighting the fight. That there are brothers and sisters that are going through the same things that we're going through. All right, so the title of this message this morning is Satan Attacks the Believer. So go to Esther chapter 3. I was telling Stephen yesterday, I was like, well, who's teaching tomorrow? He's like, well, you are. I was like, crap, I forgot. I'm going to have to go back into the archive. So instead of grabbing one of my old messages, I just grabbed one of Stephen's. I'm just, I'm kidding. That's not how this message came to be. He did, the, he did Esther for such a time as this at camp last year, if any of you guys were there. So this is going to be a 60-mile-an-hour view of Esther, um, but there's a lot of application, a lot of practicality that I want to draw from this, um, and then we'll bring it all to a close at the end. Um, so just to give some context for those of you that aren't familiar with this story, so in chapters 1 and 2, uh, King Ahasuerus calls Vashti, ironically, a Gentile bride to present herself. Uh, she refuses and is removed by the king. And as a little side note, what's funny is, not funny, I guess, just ironic. You know, she's never given a voice. She's never, she never has a moment to defend herself. She doesn't do what the king asked her to do, and she's removed. And you never hear about her again. And she is replaced with Esther, a Jew, who was brought up by Mordecai, her uncle. And she replaces Vashti as king. Now, I want to tell you that is very, very important to this story. And had that not happened, the ending of Esther, Esther probably wouldn't even be a book in our Bible, but the ending would have been vastly different. God is doing things behind the scenes in your lives. He was in the life, as we'll see, of Mordecai, that you might not see the fruit or the reason of it for 5, 10, 15 years down the road. He's setting stuff up. He's having you do things that you're like, God, this just doesn't make sense. Why are you convicting me on this issue? Sometimes we just got to trust. It's something that he couldn't even explain it to us because it wouldn't make sense to us because we're not in the situation that he's preparing for us 10 years down the road. And that's exactly what he was doing with Mordecai. So point number one, the motivation of Satan's plan, it's sanctified believers. And that's in this context. You could argue there's a lot of motivations for Satan plans, but what we're looking at today, it's sanctified believers. So you guys are in Esther chapter three. Let's look at verse, verses 1 through 5. It says, And after these things, and those things are what I just talked about, Esther being brought up um, to be queen, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamandatha, the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then Haman was full of wrath. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it talks about, you know, for, the will, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Would you say that Mordecai was sanctified here? He was completely different. He was, as we'll talk about a little later, the only one. He said, save Mordecai. Mordecai was the one who would not bow down. He would not reverence. So your first bullet point, Mordecai bowed not. We see that in verse 2. And we're not going to turn there, but Philippians 2 talks about Jesus. He is the one worthy of being bowed down to. And in our Revelation, we see John when he bows down to angels and they're like, get up. We're not worthy of that. God is worthy. God is worthy of, our, of being bowed. God is worthy of our reverential worship. He bowed not. And I want to challenge you guys. What have you been bowing your life to? You know, the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This can go right in line with that. What have you been submitting your life to over God? What have you been bowing your time to? Your talents to? Your treasure to? What have you been bowing your life to? Point number two, Mordecai had unwavering faith. We see that in verse four. For at the end, at the end he said, for he had told them that he was a Jew. He wasn't moving on that. And you think about the timing of Esther. And the men that had gone before him, one of them being Daniel. Daniel 1.8, what did Daniel do? He purposed in his heart. He would not defile himself. The king's meat or the wine with which he drank. He made a stance. He did not care about the cost. He had unwavering faith. There was nothing that was rocking Daniel, even death itself. Mordecai had that same faith. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So first we saw Mordecai bowed not. God was the most important part of his heart. And he was not going to bow to anything earthly. And we also see he had unwavering faith. And as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, we ought to have that same unwavering faith. And we have a lot of reasons on why. Verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, be, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. What's that event talking about? The rapture. The rapture. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So in this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Was that not our message yesterday? When we're going out and we're witnessing to people, we're giving them tracks. Are we not saying, look, you guys are on a deadline path for death. Some of you guys are going through Romans Road, sharing with them, you know, the wages of their sin is death. You're giving them the good test. You're showing them that they're guilty. You're saying, look, this is the death that's waiting for you down at the other end of the road. This is what's waiting for you on eternity. If you don't wake up tomorrow, where are you going to end up? According to the Bible, it's death. But man, then we can come in with the good news and say, look, I can stand here today and say death has no victory over me. I can stand here today and say, if I were not to wake up tomorrow, I know exactly where I'm going to be. But we can give them that good news about Jesus Christ. We wouldn't do that yesterday if this wasn't true. Some of us do it out of duty, and I get it. It can be uncomfortable. 
But man, when you embrace this, you'll be excited to do those things. You'll be excited to go out and give the good news. And verse 58 will also be true about you. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Mordecai was steadfast. He would not be moved on these things. And it was not because Mordecai was a strong individual. It was not because he had great character. It was not because he had integrity and he was just a hard worker. It was not because he just wanted to stick it to Haman because he wanted that role. It was because he believed God. He believed the Bible. He believed the commands that God had given him. You will not be steadfast in your walk with Jesus Christ if you do not believe this book. You know, it's like the example we were given. I don't know, I think every conversation we had yesterday, I gave the example of a parachute. You can know all you want about the Bible. You can even believe that it's true. But until you make it personal, it doesn't do you a darn look of good. And it's just like a parachute. You jump out of a plane. You can know it's going to save you. You can know it has the power to. You can know how to do it. You can know you have to unvelcro this, put it around, and then pull the string. But until you actually do that, it does you zero good. It has no power in your life. And it's the same thing with Jesus Christ. If you don't believe this book, if you don't have an interactive relationship with God, it will do you no good. And you will fall. You won't be able to withstand. You won't be able to be steadfast, unmovable. The trials of this world are going to come and they're going to back you into a corner and you're going to compromise. And you're going to bow. You're going to end up bowing to whatever Haman you have in your life. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 13. Very simple verse that I was just going to quote, but I think it's worth just seeing in the Bible. Can I get someone to read verse 8? Alana. Can that be said about you? If you're saved in here this morning, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You have the ability to have that be true about you. Can that be said about you? Are you steadfast and immovable, unmovable, whatever the word is, consistently? Are there things that throw you off the path? We have a Savior, thank the Lord, that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, the promises he gives, gives us, man, we can hold on to those. We can trust those. They can bring us peace when this world's trying to rain its garbage on us. There's people that's going to let us down. Your parents are going to let you down. No offense, Brandy, your spouse is going to let you down, and vice versa. But good gravy, God's never going to let you down. The love he had for you at salvation, he still has for you now. The love he had for you prior to salvation, he still has for you now. Be immovable in that truth. And the last point, Mordecai was the only one in that instance we saw in verse 2. Flip back to Esther. I should have had you guys hold your place. I'm sorry. What we saw in verse 2, it said, But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. And he might not have been the only one, but he gets singled out. It doesn't specifically say that, but Haman singles him out as well. And sometimes it can feel like you're the only one. Sometimes you literally might be the only one in your circumstance at school or at work or even in your family. 
I mean, that, that was me, you know, taking the stance and saying, no, this is wrong. Or no, we really shouldn't be doing that. Or I can't be a part of this. Or even sticking up for people. You're in a group of people, even, I hate to say it, within the youth group. And people start talking. Do you have a foot to put down and say, you need to shut your mouth. Don't be talking about people like that. Are you the one who steps in and speaks up for truth? Sometimes you might feel like the only one. Or, this was a conversation I had, mom or dad, church comes before blank. So I'm, I got to give that up and I got to do this. Now I think of an example when I was in senior high. We finished a football game and we had like a cookout or something that was going on after the game. And I remember my dad being like, why aren't you going to that? I'm like, well, we have an activity going on at the church. I want to be there for it. I'm like sweaty, nasty and everything. I'm like, I just, I want to be there for it. So I show up. I still, I need to ask Jay what the heck this activity was because it was like 1030 at night and we had inflatables. I don't know. It was weird. And I'm jousting with people. Huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know what it was. It was in the back backyard of the church. Nobody knew about it. Um, but my point was, I had to come to a point with my dad and say, look, this is more important to me than football. And it's not like my dad was saying, no, you have to go to this, but it, it just didn't register. And I had believers as parents. They loved God, but I wanted something more. That's a hard place to come to sometimes, but I, I'll tell you right now, if I didn't come to that place when I was a kid in high school, I would not be able to have the conversations I have with them now, which I'll give you an example. Mom, dad, I have to spank my kids. They need it. I know you're struggling with thinking that they didn't do something that warranted a spanking, but I got news for you. Even the littlest of sin deserves hell. What they did, it deserves a spanking. Remember telling my dad, I'm like, don't hate the reward of an obedient kid and hate the process. I'm like, you can't have both. There's seemingly insignificant things now and that's your key. If you're not willing to obey in the seemingly insignificant things now, you will definitely not do it when you're older. And destruction is waiting. Because if I wasn't able to take a stance when I was a student in high school, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have taken a stance when I was a parent. And now my kids would be paying the price. And they'd be hellions. All in the name because I'm like, you know what, I trust my parents. I believe my parents. Yeah, but it goes contrary to the Bible. And it's not, you know, my, my, I love my parents. And they're well-meaning with the things they say, but they have a jaded perspective. Discipline really dwindled in my family from kid to kid to kid to kid. For whatever reason. And don't take this as you guys need to go back to your parents and say, no, this is what I need to do. You need to do it in loving and kindness. You need to say, look, God's, God's important, more important to me in this instance. And I know most of your parents will respect you for it. But if you're not willing to make those tough decisions now with your friends or even with your family, you're not going to make them when you're, when you're an adult. God's giving you little tests right now. What are you doing with them? God gave Mordecai a test, and he would not bow down to Haman. Ezekiel 22.30, we're not going to turn there, says, And I saw for a man among them, God looking amongst the nation of Israel, that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. God is constantly looking for people to fill that gap. Mordecai, as we will see, filled that gap. Are you guys filling that gap in your school? 
yeah, it doesn't feel like there's many there because there's not. You're there. God has called you to fill a gap in your specific place. And maybe you're the only one. Mordecai in this instance was the only one. Point number two. The misery of Satan's plan is deep pain. We're in Esther chapter 3. Let's look at verse 8. Um, and it says, in Haman, so Haman, he's, he's mad. He's mad that, that Mordecai would not bow down. And he says, and Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's law. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. Who's Haman talking about here? The Jews. So he's like, you know what? Mordecai wouldn't bow down to me. I'm going to get him where it hurts. I'm going to convince the king that, you know what? We need to send out a decree to have all these people murdered. Now look down at verse, verse 13. So the king agrees, and then verse 13, And the letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for prey. A copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and a decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Sushan was perplexed, confused, didn't make sense. Sometimes you guys are in confusing, doesn't make sense situations. But we'll see Haman, with the power of Satan, hits Mordecai where it hurts. Look at his reaction in verse 1, chapter 4. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. You know, something that's interesting about this is sometimes we fight the urge to let the world show that stuff hurts us. Be very prideful to try and keep stuff in like, you know what, Satan, that doesn't bother me. I'm good. I got this. Sometimes you just, you got to let it out. That's a big struggle of mine. I can count on one hand the amount of times I've cried in front of my wife. And I used to look at that as a big pride. I'm a man's man. No, I just got a lot of pride. (laughs) That's really what it boils down to. Sometimes, don't be afraid to let things show. Because when you let things show, it shows the brokenness of your heart. Man, people around you can come and sweep you up. God can come and sweep you up. It's just a public reflection of what's going on inside your heart. So where's your tender spot? Where would it hurt the most for Satan to threaten? You know, what, where in your life where if Satan came in to threaten it, it would cause you to be off balance a little bit. It would cause you to think irrationally. It would cause you to make an impulsive decision. And I think of the example that Code gave at camp. You know, when a lion roars, what's your roar that caused you to fall back and stumble into a snare that he set up for you? exactly why 1 Peter 5 8 says be sober be vigilant look around be aware of what's going on don't be ignorant of his devices you know it's like in movies you know why if they can't get after the hero you know if the dude's untouchable what do they typically go after who do they go after instead his family or if you're John Wick his dog (laughs) they go after something that's very close to him Is that not it? They're just stealing that from the Bible. Satan goes after what what hurts you the most. Why? 
because of your second bullet point, our sorrow is turned to joy before the devil. We're not going to turn there, but in Job 41, one of the best descriptions of Satan, the Leviathan, says that our sorrow is turned to joy before him. He loves seeing you guys brokenhearted. He loves seeing you guys just in the deepest, darkest spot. Wrap your mind around that. I don't think we understand how sick, twisted, and perverted Satan truly is. He's behind everything that we see around us. No, nothing evil that's come up in this world he hasn't already thought of and trumped and done greater. Now, I've watched murder documentaries and seen testimonies of some of the sickest sociopaths, people that laugh at the victim's faces after they had, or the victim's parents after they killed their kid, or people that are just completely numb, have no feeling at all. I mean, outright sick individuals. But Satan is at a whole other level. Whole other level. I'll tell you, when you see evil around you, when you see garbage, should be a trigger in your mind that you're like, wow, we go up something that's far more evil than what we see even around us. And that's exactly what Satan's doing here with Mordecai. He hits him where it hurts. And Satan and Mordecai wails, but does he let it kick him back into a trap? Does he let it kick him off course? No, because Mordecai's steadfast. He's unmovable. His fulfillment, his faith is not in the physical. It's in God. And then we'll see. We're not going to turn there. But in Jeremiah 31, 13, God has the ability to turn that same sorrow into joy in our lives. It says, and he can make them rejoice for their sorrow. When something horrible comes into your life, you have two options. You can either wallow in it and get deeper, deeper down into a depressive pit, or you can give it to God and allow him to turn it to joy. And there's some situations that are just horrific out there. But if you believe the Bible, you can believe that to be true in your life too. And you'll have a testimony, you'll have an experience that you can look back on as an enormous faith builder. But that was point number two, the misery of Satan's plan. He's, he's given him deep pain. All right, and then point number three, the manifestation of Satan's plan. It's ultimately death. In every facet, physical, he wants spiritual, permanent separation. If you're a believer, he wants you to be ineffective. He's doing anything to take you out. We'll see here he tries to take Mordecai out physically. He's trying to take you guys out spiritually. He's trying to make you guys ineffective. He's trying to make your purpose, your mission, ineffective. All right, Esther chapter 5, let's look in verse 9. It says, Then went Haman forth that day joyful. And we'll talk a little bit more if we have time about the context of that, why he was joyful. Just had a meeting with the king and Esther, thinking he's getting something good. And with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation or anger against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. When he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children. That's the meeting he had with the king. Jump down to verse 12. Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in under the king, uh, in with the king under the, under the banquet that she had prepared, but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet, verse 13, All this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said, said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. 
Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. So your first bullet point, Satan is never satisfied. Never satisfied. Can I have three readers? One person go to Proverbs 13.25, Sam. Uh, Rachel, tw- Proverbs 27.20. Jared, Ecclesiastes 1.7-8. Well, we see that Satan's never satisfied. You know, Haman already had this decree that went out. The Jews were going to be taken out. He'd already hurt Mordecai's heart, deep pain. He's like, all right, I'm good. We can move on. And then what does he do? He comes out of the king's gates and he sees Mordecai that he wouldn't stand up or give him any reverence. He's like, I'm still angry. It's not enough. I need more. I'm not satisfied. Proverbs 13, 25. The righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want. The belly of the wicked shall want. They always want more. They're never, ever satisfied. Man, we see that going on around today. That's why evil and immorality just continues to go, because they never have enough. You think, man, wouldn't it just stop? We, this world's given quite a bit. Nope. It always wants. It always wants. Proverbs 27, 20. Hell and destruction are never full. And the eyes of the man are never satisfied. It always wants more. What a picture, though. Hell and destruction are never full. Evil is never full. It always wants more. It never gets to, hell never gets to a point where it's like, all right, I've got enough. We can stop now. It'll go until there's a stop put to it. That's why the Bible says be steadfast, unmovable, because the battle, the evil battle, is never going to stop until your last breath. It is never satisfied. And then Ecclesiastes 1, 7 through 8. You read verse 9 too, little booger. But verse 7, the picture of an ocean. What runs into an ocean? A river. Does the, does the ocean ever overflow? Does the ocean ever say, you know what, I'm good? No, they continually run into it. And I know there's a process to it, but what a picture of evil, of sin. It's constantly wanting more, it's constantly looking for more inlets. Give me more over here. Give me more over here. The eyes see, but they're, they're not satisfied. The ears hear, and they're not satisfied. The belly never gets full of the wicked. Hell and destruction, they're never full. Satan is never satisfied. And I want you to know, you can give Satan an inch. He's never going to be satisfied with that inch. He's going to want another one, and another one, and another one. The king gave Haman an inch, and he wanted more. Just some quick applications from Haman's life. Bitterness will drive you to a state of madness, to a place you never thought you'd be. Be careful of the friends you choose. Be even more careful of who you marry. Look at that voice that was in his ear. Guys, you've got to be careful of the wife you choose because she can lead you to a place of destruction. And girls, you better find a guy that will lead you to a place of prominence that will lead you down the path that God has set for you. God has a call on your life for full-time ministry. Find a guy. Find a guy who God has laid that on his heart. Don't settle for second rate. 
And then po the bullet point number two, guys, providential hand in the midst of chaos. We're not going to go there, but um, in Esther chapter four, Mordecai comes up to Esther and says, listen, I need, you to, I need you to approach the king. I need you to tell him what's going on, and I need you to do it in such a way that's right. And she's like, okay. And she's like, you know what? If, if I approach the king, if I go up to him, um, it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, more applications from Mordecai's life. Patience and tribulation will drive you to a place of hope. And then also be careful of the friends you choose. I get it was his niece, but man, what a friend. Do you guys have friends like that that you can trust? That you can go into battle with at Canal Days? That you know is going to be there supporting you, encouraging you, even when you make a mistake? And that be tightly knit to your spouse, Jesus Christ. All right, and then point number four, and we'll close. The massacre of Satan's plan, or the destruction of it. Patient obedience. Patient obedience. So flip over back to Esther chapter 6, and we're going to hit this at a high, high level. So how does Satan plan? How does Satan's plan get thwarted? How do the tables get turned in this situation? Because all the cards look like they're stacked against Mordecai right now. But watch, look at, see this this battle. Like I said, there's little things you do back in your life that God's not going to bring up and use for your blessing for five, ten years down the road. This battle between Mordecai and Haman, or really Mordecai and Satan, or really the nation of Israel and Satan, did not start here. There were little facets going on all the time. And verses 1 and 2 in chapter 6 is one of those. It says, On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, that keep the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. So the king sees, wow, who's this Mordecai? Who's this guy that spoke up for me, that stood for He should be blessed. And we're not going to look at all these, but a little slight. We start to see the tables turning a little bit after Mordecai's history of obedience are your bullet points. And we see Haman coming in after he was ironically waiting to go tell the king, hey, I want to set up some gallows and I want, hey, I want Mordecai to be hung on these. So Haman's waiting outside the king's gate. The king comes out and he's like, hey, Haman, come on in. What would you do for somebody who, deserved, who stood up for the king, who did this, this, and that? And Haman's thinking he's talking about him. He's like, well, I'd, I'd array him in pearls. I'd set him on a horse, blah, blah, blah. He's like, all right, do that for Mordecai. How? I mean, you, you see the tables turning a little bit, and Haman's like, what the heck's going on? I thought he's talking about me. Already God's bringing Mordecai up to a place of prominence. Already he's bringing him up in the king's eyes. And then look at verse, jump down to verse 12. So Haman does that, how humiliating, and I love that. Verse 12, And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. You know why? Because he still knew it was coming. It still hurt. He didn't know the plan. He didn't know what was going on yet. Verse 13, And Haman told Zeresh's wife, this is, what, this is what worldly friends are going to offer you, and a garbage spouse, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh's wife unto him, if Mordecai be the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. 
In other words, good luck. You have no chance. At verse 14, And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman under the banquet that Esther had prepared. So basically, Haman's having this conversation, and he's like, wait, that's the best you got for me? Come on, give me. And all of a sudden, he hears a door knock, and he's like, oh, shoot. you imagine the chill that went up his back in that moment? She's like, yeah, you're, you're going to fall. You shouldn't have done that. I took your advice. I took your advice, hon. Yeah, well, I didn't. He's, he's a Jew. You're going to fall. Oh, shoot. They're coming for you. That's how I picture it happening. These are human beings. I don't know. I love the way that God works and the irony in this situation. And then we see Satan's plan is destroyed using his own device. Chapter 7, look in verse 4. It says, And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in chapter 7. You guys are like, what are you doing? Verse 4, chapter 7. For we are sold, I and my people, this is Esther talking to the king, explaining what's going on to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. And then the king's like, what's going on? Who is he? And where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is the wicked, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And there's a little more detail, but let's jump down to verse 9. And Harbanah, one of the, king, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold, also, the gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king. Again, that place of prominence. All these pieces going into place. God knew exactly what he was doing. Standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him thereon. He's like, man, what are we going to do with him? How do we? Well, look at what he built for Mordecai, this guy that you just blessed, that stood up for you. Well, let's stick him in on his own device. Verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. What an amazing story going on in the Bible. This device that Haman was putting together, Satan was putting together to hang Mordecai on. Man, what a turning of the tables. To stick the enemy right on his same device. And I want you to think of this. I encourage you guys to look at those cross-references, especially 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Um, but I want you to think of this. You know, the death that Satan is trying to send people to is the same death that he's going to experience for all of eternity. You really think about that. This is exact. This is a picture of what's going to happen to Satan. And he knows it, but man, he's got, an, he's got too much pride to say no. And he continues pressing on. That same death that he wants the entire lost world to go to, that he wants everybody to go to, it was prepared for him. Those gallows that were prepared for Mordecai, they were prepared for Haman. So in closing, don't shy away from the seemingly impossible situation in your life that appears as if Satan has already had victory in it. That just might be the thing that God wants to use to not only combat and bring victory through, but also propel you to a deeper faith in your Lord and Savior. God has seen it all and is prepared for all. Jared already read verse 9. Thanks, bud. There's no new thing under the sun. He's seen it all. Allow him capital H, God, to work through your obedience. I want to flip over to Hebrews 11. We're going to end there real quick. But your final key is God's resurrection is always better than self-made deliverance. Every time. It's always better to wait on God 
patiently, obediently. We'll start in verse 32. He says, And what shall I, what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and, and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. So time's going to fail me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And here it is. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Man, that was my life first in 2020. And a lot of it's just stupid stuff and situations that we put ourselves in. But man, I can have an innate desire to when I'm in a tough situation to find the escape route. How do I get out of here as quick as possible? I can tell you from experience, it's far greater to endure and wait for God's resurrection rather than your own deliverance out of a situation. God will let you out of those situations. God loves you. He'll take care of you. But man, you're missing out on some major blessings and some major workings of God. If you would just wait and let God work. Sometimes, a lot of times, it requires you to do something. It requires you to take a stand. But man, let God work. God is 10 steps ahead of any situation that you find yourself in, just like he was with Mordecai and Esther and the nation of Israel. So what do you need patience in? Or what have you allowed to discourage you so much that you've given up completely? You know, I'll end with this point. If I was a student in high school when I was in when I was a freshman, if you would have come up to me at Canadians and tried to witness to me, I would have I would have said, "Leave me alone. I got it. I'm good. I know I know God. I would not have given you the time of day." That's why it's hard for me to evangelize because I'm like, "Did I did not receive it well?" But my point is, I just needed a different tactic. There was a different way that God had to use somebody to reach my heart, and that was Jay. Standing up, not in my face, sharing what the Bible said about discipleship. I'm like, yeah, I'm in. I need that. Just because something's not working in your life doesn't mean that that is a failed cause. Maybe you need to do something different. Maybe you need to change your approach. But be patient because, man, Satan wants you to give up. Turn that right back around on him and try even harder. Don't give up. Don't seek deliverance over the resurrection that God has for you, over the victory that he has for you. Because, man, what a faith builder. It'll make you do more and more down the road for the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truths in your Bible. For real life stories, man, we can read over that and just think it's, it's a fiction book. God, but this was an event. These people walked and lived and breathed on this earth. Lord, and it's true. What a picture. God, I pray that you would use it to encourage us, to give us patience. Lord, that when... The tables seem uh, like they're against us. When the cards seem stacked against us, Father, that we'd patiently wait, knowing that you are greater than anything in this world. Father, so give us power. Give us an encouragement, Lord, to go out and fight the fight, to be strong in the battle, to endure, to stand up for what's right when it feels like this entire world is thrown in the towel. So, Father, I pray for the service. I pray for Stephen, that you would use him as your vessel. God, give him the words to penetrate the hearts of everybody in there. For all this in Jesus' name, amen.